uh, Bill continues to take a break from occupying the, the pulpit, as, as preachers say. Uh, we are privileged to have with us Dan Rudman, whom we know as a family in our church, um, a man who has helped us in so many different ways. I verified his title. He, he's an evangelist and preacher for Ambassadors for Christ International, and his particular venue is Lawrence, Kansas, and areas beyond. But that's Dan Rudman, and we welcome him now to bring God's Word to us. Dan. Well, good morning. It's a privilege to be with you this morning. Uh, it's always a privilege. This is amazing to be able to come here, and I know so many of you. And so uh, we look to the Lord this morning to bring his word to us. And uh, for, so as we begin, if you just bow your heads with me, I'd like to pray, and then we'll jump in and see where it takes us. Lord, I thank you. It's an amazing thing to come and to consider that we're not just hearing the words of men that we're hearing your very word. And so as we open your word this morning, Lord, I pray that you would speak clearly, that you would open our minds. <clears throat> Truly, Lord, as we will address this morning, open our hearts, that we may see, see and understand and embrace the reality of what you've given us, Lord. I thank you so much, and I pray for my dear friends here this morning that we indeed would walk away with a sense of awe of who you are and what you've done in us and for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning I'm going to be turning here to 1 Peter, but before I read that, I want to do something a little bit different this morning, and that is I want to read a little bit of a context, help you understand a little bit of context when this letter was being written. So as I read it, you'll really get a sense of what's being said here. See, we're dealing here with a Roman culture, and under that Roman culture there was a desire for a unity of mankind under universal law. Uh, the Roman influence had fused all sorts of different kinds of peoples together in one political organization. Um, there was freedom in that society for uh, a road system and communication. There was a universal language. Greek philosophy was, was very strong. Uh, it was an intellectual philosophy. It kind of explained away this idea of these finite little gods of polytheism. Um, they were wrestling, but yet discussing right and wrong, morality, immorality. They recognized the insufficiency of human reason. It was during that time when you think of Socrates, Plato, and they were pointing to these transcendent things, that there were these things beyond the table and the things we look at today. There were these things called beauty and love and the soul and maybe this thing called God. Within this, at the same time um, that all of this was going on, they didn't really have clear answers, and so there was a growing skepticism. There was the idea that maybe if there's a God out there, he's kind of abstract, not personal, not loving. And uh, in all of this, then, there was this spiritual vacuum, okay, with lots of different subjective ideas about God, and in that spiritual vacuum, people were trying to pursue transcendent things, through earthly things, that is, those that had power and money were pursuing uh, hedonistic ideas and slavery and all sorts of perverse kinds of things. And it's into this, then, you realize that whatever the religious kind of ideas you had, okay, had to be accepted by the state, had to fit in with this idea of emperor worship. And this created a great problem for Christians. 
you see, because they faced opposition here because they clearly proclaimed, they clearly believed that they had knowledge, historical knowledge, philosophical knowledge, the real deal, that the true living God had actually showed up on earth, that he really was who he said he was, he actually had spoken, and this was in great opposition to the society around them. So they could not participate because of their convictions. They could not participate in the gladiator games. They could not participate in the military. They couldn't even participate in the arts because of their convictions. They couldn't participate in education. If they were to teach in the public institution with all these varied worldviews, they couldn't do it. So as such, you can look at all sorts of history, and it's fascinating that those around there saw these Christians as haters of humanity. One little quote here, they were social misfits. Their companions thought it was strange they no longer participated in the riotous lifestyle of the Hellenistic society. Scandal was heaped upon them. They were credited with hatred of the human race. Not just non-social, but they were antisocial, a menace to order and society. They were hated of all men for the sake of the name of Christ. Okay? In that setting, then, if you looked at the first couple verses of Peter, Peter begins to, pre- to speak to them, and he writes this letter to these aliens, to those who reside as aliens, exiles, pilgrims. You don't belong here, and you're scattered in all these places, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge. And we actually read that as an affirmation of faith this morning. So they were exiles, and they were scattered all over. And this is what Peter writes now. This is the word of God. First. Peter chapter 3, for the sake of context, I'm going to read 8 through 16, though I'm only going to spend time really addressing 13 through 15 this morning, but look at this. He's addressing them and how to deal with this conflict, this tremendous persecution that's around them, and throughout the book he deals with this persecution. And he says in the middle of chapter 3 here, to sum it up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. Verse 10, for the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, verse 13, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you. And all of this with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Now, notice here, when, when Peter is speaking, okay, this is like 25, 30 years after Christ actually walked the earth. And certainly Peter was right in the presence of Christ, right? And so when you read through 1 Peter, you get this flavor that was, goes all the way back to when Jesus actually taught them. You can go into the Gospels, and if you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And if you were to look through the teaching of Jesus, Matthew 10 is a great synopsis. If I were just to give commentary, he said, listen, Christian, follower of me, you've trusted in me, disciple. They hated me, Jesus, they're going to hate you. 
You're going to have betrayal in your own family. You're going to have betrayal amongst those that you think love you and your own friends and your own neighbor. This is coming. But, but listen, there's nothing you need to be afraid of because everything that's known, all the deception, all the justice in one day and one time is all going to be made known. Secondly, listen, they can't harm your soul. They can't harm your soul. Okay? And so, yes, they can harm your body, but they can't harm your soul. And thirdly, he said... You know, these, these ideas of ne- I will always be with you, never, I will never leave you, I'll never forsake you. Listen, I know the sparrows that fall from the, from the sky, and when they fall, I know the hairs on your head, you don't have to sweat it. And as far as you get along with people, go on, give an answer, and at the end of the day, and you'll see this throughout First Peter, entrust yourself to God who judges justly. Trust God. Now, in the middle of that, then, Peter comes here and specifically is saying, so how do we respond in the middle of this persecution? And I'm going to talk on a couple things here in 13, 14, 15 that have tremendous ramifications for our day today. Right here, July 28th, 2013. Let's go back through this and read this. Look at 13 through 15. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. I know in our community of believers here, some of you read the ESV, very similar. It's, it's, it's honor, you know, it's the idea of your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Otherwise, it's very, very similar, very much the same. Verse 13, just a couple comments on 13 and 14. Again, it's this idea, but who is to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? You read the commentators, there's a couple ways you could see that. Certainly there's the idea, you see this flowing in the scripture too, that as you get along, as you respond appropriately to your neighbors, to the authorities around you, you know, for the most part, you probably live a pretty, pretty, pretty quiet life. But truly, in the context of what Jesus was talking about caring here, he's certainly saying, listen, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? If you're living for what is right and you're pursuing Christ, you're immortal till the day you die. Until <laughs> God calls you home, nobody can harm you. Nobody can do anything to you without passing through the hands of God. So nobody can really harm you. Think about that. And then verse 14, he's, this is a, a fascinating passage. I remember when I began to experience it in my life. Some of you that are younger here, you may have not experienced much of this yet per se, although I think it's more around us than we know. It's this idea, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness... Now catch that. This is suffering for doing that which is right. See, it's one thing to suffer because I caused my own problems. You know, I I got myself in trouble. I shot off my mouth. I said something stupid. I get all that, okay? But what about suffering for doing righteousness? I mean, like doing the right thing, believing the right thing, holding the right thing, being a virtuous, holy person, pursuing Christ, and you suffer for that? Wow. Wow. And then he says, do not fear intimidation and do not be troubled. Now, this is an interesting passage that Peter uses here, and this sets up 15. You've got to catch this this morning, okay? When Peter is using this, in fact, probably most of your Bibles, it's capitalized, and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. He is quoting here, he is referring to here to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 8 of Isaiah 12 and 13. In the context, when Isaiah was prophesying, he was prophesying to King Ahaz, which you'll find in 2 Kings 16, for those of you who are interested in all of that. But basically, the bottom line was Ahaz, king of Judah, linked arms 
with a pagan king, the king of Assyria. Shouldn't have done that. He was trying to have peace. He was trying to control the country. He was trying to do what he needed to do. But he linked arms with the wrong kind of people, and it deeply infected, affected the nation of Israel because all these pagan practices came in. Oh, they had peace. And oh, they looked like they were secure. But all sorts of bad things happened. And in the midst of that, Isaiah was prophesying to Ahaz, and he says, and, our, and you are not to fear what they fear or be dread of it. This is, uh, uh, excuse me, Isaiah chapter 8. It is the Lord of hosts, the Yahweh of armies, whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Now think of Isaiah. He said, listen, you are to only fear God. He is to be the center point. He is to be the reference, the Lord God of the universe. Do not fear these people around you. This is what Isaiah was saying to Ahaz. So now think of the command here. He is coming, quoting the Old Testament, and he is saying, this intimidation is very real. Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. And he's saying it in that day in contemporary Christian life. And, and God's word is saying it to us in this day in contemporary life. If you don't think intimidation is around you, you just need to look at the news people. Look around you. I remember watching during the Olympics just an interview with uh, a CBS uh, sports uh, uh, broadcaster commentator who was interviewing the young woman, I think she's from New York, this, this great runner, who had conviction. She was a believer. And she had conviction about sexuality. When they asked her about her saving herself for her husband, and she was very strong about that view, the commentator actually began to laugh. Began to laugh. I mean, this is very real. If you're a student sitting here today, you're sitting in classrooms, and you're hearing instructors say things, and you have this peer pressure around you, and inside of you, you are hearing these things, and you're believing in certain issues of morality and immorality, and you're being called a bigot. You're being called hateful. Because you hold a view. That's called intimidation. Okay? This is the same thing that's happening here. So in the midst of that, Peter comes in, and look at this. He says, and this is the big thing that ties with Isaiah, intimidation and do not be troubled, but, but here's the command. Now, in this entire passage, if you go into the Greek structure, this is the central command. There is no other. Everything else modifies this, okay? So even over the next few minutes, I'm going to spend most of my time on this. Look what he says. But sanctify or honor Christ as Lord or Christ as holy in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you. Now get this, folks. Sanctify, honor, set up, reverence, separate, other. Who are we talking about here? This is the ultimate reality, the ultimate reference point. Christ the Lord. Equal to Old Testament Yahweh. We're talking about the same person. Now that should give you goosebumps. Because we're talking about the Lord of armies, the God, Christ the Holy One. Now listen, this is not a statement about me. When people say, well, I've made Christ the Lord of my life. No, we can have a discussion about that. That's not what this is talking about. This is, state, this is a statement of fact. This is a statement of real knowledge that we are to accept, we are to bow to, we are to embrace that Jesus Christ is the Lord God of the universe. Which means, people, listen, we, we, we say this even in our church, right? We say this amongst our believers. Do you realize that your heart just beat just one more time? 
Your lungs just, you just breathe one more time. Your mind right now has some clarity in the words that I'm speaking to you. The only reason is because there's a Lord God keeping it working. It can be gone that quick. God is God. Jesus is God. He is the I am. He is the I am. And then as that, look what he says. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Now, this idea of heart is the center, the reference of everything in you as a human person. You find this throughout the scripture. This isn't just a sentimentality. This is not just a feeling. This is not just a cheer of setting up in your hearts, okay? This affects your entire being, your mind, your thoughts, your will, your body, your soul. He's saying you set up, this is the reference point, this is the ultimate reality you are fixed on, Christ the Lord. And you set that up in your hearts. You know, I talked to a student one time, and we were talking about church. They moved to a new community. They were in this big church. And I said, so, you know, what's it like? What's it like going there? I just love going there. I said, why? And it was like, and I'm not, this isn't a disparaging remark, by the way, okay? Um, it It was like one of these churches with a big concert kind of thing, you know, all the lights and all the show. And she said, I love going there because I get my zing. And I'm like, really? Is that what this is about, a zing? Is that what this means, set up Christ in your heart? Now, you need to know, and we'll talk about this here in a minute, I totally believe in incredible experience. I mean, I've I've been in stadiums with 50,000 men praising God, tears coming down your face. Incredible experience, okay? Those are incredible, incredible things, but you've got to catch this this morning. Having a zing for a weekend won't carry you through in persecution. You're going to have to know something is really true and really real, that Christ is the Lord, that everything makes sense in and around that, Because a weekend experience is not going to carry you through when there's a gun pointed at your head. It's not going to carry you through, you high school students and college students, when that peer pressure's on or that professor's dogging you. You're going to have to be convinced in your heart, not because of a motivational speech, but because it is. You're going to have to be convinced. And so you begin to realize as you get through this idea of the human heart, this flows through all through the scriptures. And essentially, listen to this. There's one of two directions for the human heart. either Christ is Lord. This is what Jesus meant when he said, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, really know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Now understand, eternal life is not getting to heaven. Eternal life is something you enter into now. And it affects your emotions and your thoughts and the way you think and the way you live and the decisions you make and your body and your identity. It affects the whole deal and you enter into it when you enter into this relationship with Jesus Christ. And increasingly you're conformed into the image of Christ. Now there's another track you can go. And that's, that's where your heart is set on something else. An idol. Usually yourself. And in this, if you go through the scripture, you'll find we could call it the ruined soul. You actually ruin your soul. Everybody sitting in this room today, everybody sitting in Lawrence, Kansas today, is on one of those two roads. A ruined soul or moving towards the image of Christ. That's all there is. C.S. Lewis picked up on this. Some of the, I think it's been read here before, but it's a fascinating quote. <clears throat> in the weight of glory, Lewis says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. <clears throat> To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk with may one day be a creature which if you saw it now you'd be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of those destinations. There are no ordinary people you've never talked to a mere mortal. 
It's amazing. All where your heart is bent. Now, this morning I'm going to venture into something because I want you to catch this. There's very specific ramifications for our contemporary day today on this issue. Okay? This has a huge effect about setting Christ as Lord of your heart, which is your entire being. It has huge ramifications on your mind and how you think, how you look at life, and then how you experience life. Now, if today if I were to go, pardon me a minute. <clears throat> Clear that thing up. Okay. <clears throat> if I were to go today on a mission to the Amazon jungle, we were to say, let's go find some primitive people. Now, primitive means <clears throat> they don't have the technology we have. They don't drive cars. <clears throat> but it doesn't mean they don't have IQ like we have. In fact, some would be far more geniuses than me. It doesn't mean they don't have morality, because they do. They make decisions every day about what's right and wrong. They would feel shame like many of us feel here. They would feel guilt. They would have all the same experiences we have. They would just be in a different context. At the same time, they would have a view, an understanding of their life as they look at the life around them. They would be asking questions about ultimate reality. They would be asking questions about what is all of this. They'd be asking questions about what a human being is. They'd be asking questions about meaning and purpose and about, about morality and about how we know things. All of those things that I've just mentioned have to do with what's currently known, what we call this idea of a worldview. It's simply the lens by which you wake up in the morning and you look at life. And if we were to go into this jungle, these would be very real examples. We would find these people and we would find them, for example, when they're planting seeds. They, they may walk around and just arbitrarily throw seeds wherever. Now, the reason they would do that is they would have a view that maybe there's these finite gods, and I don't want to displease any of these gods and pretend that I can manipulate any of these gods, so I'm just going to throw seeds, and I hope some of the gods that like us will ordain, if you will, this seed or that seed, and it'll grow. Now, that's a very real missionary example. Perhaps they believe in cannibalism. Perhaps they believe that you can take something from somebody else, even their life, to fill something within yourself. Perhaps they believe in child sacrifice. Now in time, just to make the short story short and quick this morning, in time we minister to these people, we begin to they begin to understand the great creator, the one that's just and loving. They begin to understand who God is. They begin to understand the reality that Christ really walked in real place, real time, real history, that he died on a cross, he came back to life. And in that, we don't need to theologically get into all the discussion this morning, but their eyes are open to it and they put their trust in Christ. Let's say that really happens, and it does, all over the world every single day. Now, let's just say today. We're here today. Let's go back two weeks. Let's say two weeks ago, and again, I don't think it always works exactly like this, but let's just say there was this given day that they came to understand this trust in Christ, and they put their trust in Christ. Now we're two weeks down the road. Let's go a month down the road, eight weeks, ten weeks down the road. And what begins to happen in their life? What begins, what begins to go on? Well, you know, as they begin to set up Christ as Lord, it begins to inform and transform everything they think and everything they do. In time, all of a sudden they realize, wow, there's this thing called the creation mandate. And like this God that really loves us, the, really, the real God of the universe, we don't have to throw seeds arbitrarily. We can actually plant them in a row and participate in this world that he's created. Well, like cannibalism isn't right. Like, wow, maybe a month down the road they figure, oh, child sacrifice isn't right. You see, their mind begins to change. You see, it's not just believe in Jesus and continue to, uh, to, to embrace these immoral ideas or this immoral thinking, it, it overtakes the entire being when you set up Christ as Lord of your heart. Your entire thinking, your entire framework begins to change. So now let's come to our day today. This is serious ramifications, folks. Very serious. Because you see, you are sitting in a world, you're, you, we are no different than real human beings sitting in the Amazon jungle. We are sitting in a society 
We are sitting under ideas, and primarily, and I'm doing this broad stroke this morning for the sake of time, you need to understand that you're sitting under every single day, that you're sitting in school, that you're going to work, that you're listening to the radio, that whatever you're doing, we are sitting under basically three competing worldviews. Three ways of looking at life that are being impressed upon us, saturating us, being imposed on our minds. Just like the Amazon jungle folks had worldview impressed upon their mind. And these three, just quickly, if I want to go through these this morning, and again, I'm doing this broad stroke. I know some of you who are in academics know there's a lot more to this. But I think this gets to the heart of it. The first competing worldview is this idea of, of we could call it naturalism. Modernism, scientific naturalism, secular humanism. The ultimate reality in this is stuff. And stuff kind of somehow figured out how to beget stuff, and stuff begets stuff, and here we are as people. And beginning with man, man, in this closed universe, we need to figure this all out. So the origins of where we come through is this idea of some kind of stuff, beginning stuff, and this idea of evolution. Meaning and purpose is whatever you make it. Morality and immorality is whatever a group of us decide. This has huge impacts on our life. It's, it's commandeered science, to be honest with you. It has a huge impact on our society today and what it means to be a human being. Because, see, in a human being, in a naturalistic framework, you have to get this. You are a determined, predetermined, non-free piece of machinery. Your, your brain, your body, who you are is nothing more than a big data processing but complex machine. That's what you are. There's nothing beyond. There's nothing transcendent. There's nothing soulish. There's, beauty isn't really real. It's just kind of whatever you want it to be. Love isn't really real. It's whatever. There is no God. And we explain the world that way, and it has serious, serious ramifications. <clears throat> Do you understand that this worldview has impacted the world? At the end of the day, it's called survival of the fittest. It's called might means right. Welcome to Hitler's Germany, folks. 10 to 15 million people killed underneath this worldview. You have Stalin and Lenin, 55 million. Mao Zedong, well over 50 million. Just in the last century, Pol Pot, 2 to 4 million. Margaret Sanger, right in our own country. Free sexuality, whatever you want. Eugenics, certain people shouldn't have babies. Minorities, by the way. She did hold that. A million children a year being killed in our country. All under a guise and a worldview that every one of us in this room have been saturated with. It's a way of answering these basic questions of life. And there is no freedom in it. <clears throat> Even a philosopher from USC, John Searle, says, freedom is so built into our experience that we can't give it up, even though we have, within naturalism, no ground for it. In other words, when you go home at night and your child jumps in your arms and they say, I love you, is it real? When you decide tomorrow to go to this restaurant, eat this thing, do this thing, is it real? Or is it all predetermined? Are you, is all that's true about you is what you're born? You're just a piece of machinery and you spit out whatever the chemicals say and there's no you in here doing or making any decisions. And you understand that if you adopt that worldview where you reject the transcendent, you reject love, you reject beauty, did you notice what John Searle just said? He lives as though it exists even though within his worldview it doesn't. You know what that's called? A blind leap of faith. Does that turn things on its head, huh? Pretty amazing. There's another dominating worldview in our society. It's called postmodernism, cosmic humanism. It's, it's the idea of relativism. Let me just read a statement on this so you catch this. As a philosophical standpoint, postmodernism is primarily a misinterpretation of what, or excuse me, yeah, misinterpretation of what knowledge is and what counts as knowledge. 
Culturally, it's represented by relativism about such things as reality, truth, reason, value, linguistic meaning, the self, and other notions. On a postmodernist view, there's no such thing as objective reality, truth, value, reason, and so forth. All these are social constructions, creations of linguistic practices. You really can't know anything. So what do you do? You're left with yourself. You're left with whatever's inside of you, whatever you feel, whatever you think, I guess, is true. And then if a group of you get together, a group of you decide that's what's true. Now, this has serious ramifications. It's deeply affecting what we call spirituality. You hear this all around our society, right? Spirituality is this idea that spirituality is good. See, this gets in this idea of a cosmic humanism. See, since we really can't know anything transcendent, and yet we kind of have the sense that we really need it, we create whatever we want in this, and it becomes this mystical, spiritual nothing. It's pantheism or penentheism. Okay? It's, it's what you see around Lawrence just a couple weeks ago. We had this uh, metaphysical fair in town where people come in and say they're psychics, and they can kind of somehow tap into the transcendent for power. It's coexist bumper stickers. It's Oprah. It's Deepak Chopra. This is huge. And it's not benign. It's this idea of tolerance that we're hearing. This idea of uh, toleration means today, instead of the historic view that basically said, you know, I may disagree with you. I may even think your view is stupid. Okay? But you have a right as an individual to be able to lay that idea on the table. That's what created a free and civil society. It's what created education. Let's put the ideas on the table. Let's, let's, let, let's deal with the controversies. But the new toleration means we must be intolerant of the intolerant making us intolerant. You can't tell, everybody's view is, is correct. You can't question that. And if, if to question that view of intolerance is intolerant. So at the end of the day, I'm immoral for knowing certain things are immoral. Think about that. I'm immoral if I were to say, I think there are things, I know there are things that are immoral. And if I state those views, then I'm immoral for saying that. Though there's not a basis for morality and immorality in postmodernism. Does that sound confusing? It is. <laughs> it doesn't fit a real world. I, I had this experience where I, I met with a professor from um, the university here, and uh, he wanted to watch some of the work I was doing in the jail. I, can't remember, I don't know how he found out about me or anything, but he wanted, to, he wanted to come up and watch what I did. And he was in psychology, and he was a counselor. And, and uh, so he watched what I did in jail, and I only asked him that after we're done in the jail, would, could we go out afterwards, you know, for burger, beer, Coke, whatever, and have a discussion? And uh, you probably can guess what I want to talk to him about. You know? So he watches this discussion in the jail, and we go meet, set him at Jackson Town here, and he said, you know, that was fascinating. I've never heard anything like that. And basically all he did was answer their questions and point them to the gospel. Talked about the cross, the reality of Christ. This is real. You can put your trust in it. And then we began to talk about the nature of truth. And he said, but you know what I really think? I really think people come up with truth. I, I realize that's your truth, but people come up with truth based on their own experiences. And they come up with what's true for them. I said, you really believe that? He said, yeah. I said, well, let me ask you a question. And by the way, this doesn't make me that, sh that sharp. I just get this from other people that I read and study. But I said, well, let me ask you a question. So, like, if you were to put the epitome of a person who would demonstrate, like, some humanitarian, you know, view, some view of caring for human beings, and you were to put that person up there as, like, the model, you know, we'd put up, like, Mother Teresa or Gandhi or somebody, whoever your choice is. And he goes, I get that. Okay, so what would be the person you'd put up as the epitome of your view? That view that they come with their own experiences, their own truth, and they live with a clear conscience to that truth. What is that person? What do you call it? And he says, well, you're baiting me, so just tell me. I said, it's called a sociopath. I said, a person who comes up with their own truth, they could murder, they can rape, they can do whatever they want, and they have an absolutely clear conscience. 
I says, and that's what you want to take into the jail with me? That's what you want to teach students in the university? That's what you're counseling my children in the university? And he just stopped. He says, I've got to think about this. I said, yeah, you do. You see, it doesn't work. It's insanity. So you have naturalism, you have postmodernism, and obviously, as we sit here this morning, you have this profound thing that came from another place called Christianity, the Christian worldview, that begins with the personal, infinite, triune God is really there, that he's really communicated. Do you realize this? Just the fact he's there, what would be the opposite of that? He's not there. You know what I just did? That's called the law of non-contradiction, which is a philosophical construct for those of you who have studied that. It, it sets up the entire discussion of the human mind and, and discussion in the world that if I have left, the right, top, bottom, if I have this thing, it's not that thing. Do you realize just the fact that the personal infinite God is actually there sets up an entire philosophical construct and we haven't even got into the scriptures on any kind of doctrine yet. It's, it's unbelievable. The fact that he spoke means we have real knowledge. Means, means he, words actually mean something. Do you know there's academics today studying for years and years and years trying to figure out about words and we can't really know words and it's all tied up within a society and blah, 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 blah. We could have this discussion forever. The Christian worldview says God spoke. Verse 3, chapter 1, Genesis. He spoke everything into existence, which means we communicate. It's real. We know the limitations. We get that. But it doesn't mean that you don't understand what I'm saying right now. God sets up this whole thing, and again, get this. Jesus is Lord. He is God. He is the reference point that I set up that gives me clarity on how I know things, on the nature of truth, on the nature of morality, on the nature of meaning and purpose, on the nature of my body, on the nature of what it means to be a human being. That's all set up when I do this one command. It sets the whole thing up. That's why this is so critical. And you go through the scripture and God says this over and over, does he not? He says, listen, I'm giving you a wisdom in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. From another world, you know, the Greeks are looking for this. Jews are looking for it. I'm going to give it to you in Revelation. I'm going to give it to you, to, to you sim simple people. He actually says that. So you can confound the wise. You don't have to study this for 10 years. I'm just going to give it to you. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Have a change of your mind. Have you transformed? Like we were talking about the people in the Amazon, just like we need to be transformed here. Be transformed by a renewing of your mind. Romans 8, serious ramifications. Romans 8, verse 5. Those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death. The mind set on the spirit is life and peace. You see, one of two roads. Either the image of Christ or you become gullimized. For those in Lord of the Rings' interest. You become gollum. Look it up sometime. If, you know, if you don't know what I'm talking about, just YouTube Smeagol Transformation to Golem and watch what happens. Watch what happens to a person who indulges the wrong things. <clears throat> These views are serious, my friends. It's not Jesus plus my old thinking. Imagine if we went back into the Amazon jungle five years from now, okay? And we had these people there, and they still were cannibals. And they still were doing child sacrifice, but yet they said they were Christians. We'd ask some serious questions, wouldn't we? First of all, did they really understand what it means to be Christians? Not just an ethic, but have they really been transformed? We would ask that, but, but let's move beyond that. We would tell them as Christians, no, 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 you don't understand. To be a Christian is more than just saying, I believe in Jesus, and then adopting the worldview around you. 
To believe in Jesus is to believe him as the Lord God of your entire heart, of your entire being, of the entire framework you submit to him on all things. Catch that? Now, this moves to the second part of this then quickly, is this has a huge impact on our experience. See, see, as I begin to talk about this this morning, my guess, because this happens to me quite often when I address this, people think I'm talking about some cool little intellectual academic thing that's good for people at the university. Folks, that's not what I'm talking about. And the very fact, if some of you, seriously, right now, if some of you think that's what I'm talking about, the reason you think I'm talking about that is you have been in, impacted, infected by a naturalistic or a postmodern worldview that says that this Christian thing is just this subjective feeling thing. It's this thing of my values and this faith thing over here. It's not real knowledge. That's not the Christian worldview. That's not what Jesus gave us. He gave us eternal life, life which impacts my mind and my body and everything I'm talking about this morning, okay? So when we get to experience, you don't think God created experience? He wants us to deeply experience life. He wants me to deeply experience beauty and arts and, yes, sexuality. It's God's design. He set this up. Turn with me quickly this morning to Ephesians chapter 4. I want to just read this. I wish I had time to preach it. I don't. I've only got a few minutes left, and I know I'm going long already. Typical of me. Look at Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. This describes this biblically exactly what I'm talking about, this idea of being gullimized, this idea of ruining the soul. Look what this says. 17, chapter 4. This I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk, journey, live, no longer just as the Gentiles also journey, walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God. That life isn't just eternal life. The actual word used there is the whole sense of the experience of all of this life. They have been excluded from it because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become calloused, you become calloused to the point you can't even feel things, have given themselves over to sensuality or hedonism for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Now, the NIV, I love the translation. In the, if you had the NIV, it says... Um, uh, this, this give themselves over to sensuality or hedonism with a continual lust for more. So you can't get enough. You know what our modern society calls that? Addiction. You can't get enough. Now, there's more I could say about this, but let me just read a couple excerpts from you. Philosopher uh, Dallas Willard, who recently just passed away, and, and I'll just tell you, I don't agree with everything theologically that Dallas Willard says, but he gives a great synopsis of the understanding of the ruined soul here. Listen to this. And has to do with experience in our culture this day. In the ruined soul, the mind becomes a fearful wilderness and a wild intermixture of thought and feeling, manifested in willful stupidities, blatant inconsistencies and confusions, often to the point of obsession, madness, or possession. The condition of the mind is what characterizes our world apart from God. Further then, he says, <clears throat> hang on further, this is, a, this is just stunning. In a world apart from God, the power of denial, of lying to yourself, is absolutely essential if life is to proceed. The will or the spirit cannot psychologically cannot sustain itself for any length of time in the face of what it clearly acknowledges to be reality. Therefore, it must deny and evade and delude itself. Now, when the light of the fundamental truth and reality, God, is put out of the heart and the soul, the intellect becomes dysfunctional trying to devise some truth, a truth, quotation small t, 
man-made truth, that will be compatible with their basic falsehood. And the affections, feelings, emotions, sensations soon follow along and put the path to chaos. They become futile in their speculations, as Paul says, and their foolish heart is darkened. Professing to be wise, they become fools. But remember, the mind is now uprooted from reality and it's committed to the truth of falsehood. And as such, listen what happens now. Okay, listen. Young people, listen. This is what happens. You're watching this unfold in your society every single day. This is real in your lives, you kids' lives. I've heard a million stories on this thing. Not quite a million, but a lot. Okay. The human body becomes the primary area of pleasure for the person who does not live honestly and interactively with God and also the primary source for terror, torture, and death. So it's an obvious thing to turn to for those who worship something other than God. And because the bodily enjoyment is what they want, what they choose to pursue, God abandons them to their pursuit of every pleasurable sensation they can wring out of their body, primarily sexual. For that usually gives the greatest kick. But bodily violence is a close second. This is the spiritual root of obsession with sex and violence in our society. Free love, as it is often called, falsely called, it's not free and it's not love, along with various forms of perversion are simply an extension of this body worship, even to the worship of sexual body parts, which we see in archaeology and even in our modern life. Now listen. But it turns out that sensuality cannot be satisfied. It's not self-limiting. That is partly because the effect of engaging in the practices of sensuality is to deaden feeling, become calloused. Then awakens the relentless drive, the desperate need simply to feel something. This drive is rooted in the basic human nature. God created us to feel, to experience. But listen now, here's, here's the trump, okay? Here's the deal. But if we are not living the great drama of goodness in God's kingdom, if we are not living under this true reference point of Christ as Lord in our hearts, sensuality through the body is all that is left under our man-made kingdom. Welcome to Lawrence, Kansas, United States of America, July 28, 2013. With all the stuff that's going on in our society, all the sexual perversion, all the twistedness, all that's going on, this is it. You see, it truly affects what we think about when we set up Christ as Lord, how it affects the way we look at life, how we understand life, it will affect everything about our experience. Now, trying to bring this home the best I can here, turn back with me to 1 Peter. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you. Always being ready to make a defense. Now understand just quickly, the hope is this whole thing I'm talking about. Going to the end of the passage, right? Hope is this whole reality of life that we get to enter into and experience and know. And then he says, being ready, prepared. Now, to get this, there's two things here. I called Rick about this. I was wrestling through the Greek study here, and I, I think there's a reason God, there was always a reason, but I think we get the reason why God did this, okay? This idea of being ready, prepared to give a defense. Now, listen to this. This being ready is not really a command that follows along with the prior command, which means that this, when I set up Christ Jesus as Lord in my heart, I am ready. You see, I have the reference point. I get two plus two is four. I could go into a classroom today and listen to the greatest theory on earth. They could try to convince me two plus two is five, and I would never buy it. No, I may parrot it. I may say it. But deep in my soul, I go, no, 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 no. Two plus two is four. It was four 500 years ago. It's four 500 years from now. You can't change it. Once the reference point is set by God, 
it can't be changed. And this is what some of the college students, there's not many here right now, but many of them have said under worldview stuff that we've discussed some of the stuff over the last 10 or 12 years. And I said, listen, even if you can't articulate this, at least you can smell the rat. You should be able to listen to a statement being said, something on the news, watching a movie, hearing an instructor say something and say, you know, I'm not sure, but this doesn't add up. You catch that? That's what has to happen in our lives. And so he's saying, be ready. And the second part of it is literally because it follows along the command. There is this sense in which we have to prepare to be ready. We have to work at this. We have to develop this. We have to prepare to be ready. This, this doesn't necessarily just come naturally just because you're a Christian. You have to begin to have a transforming of your mind. You begin to need to think about these and reflect them to God. A lot more could be said about that. I'd love to say a lot more about that. But notice the second part of this. Being ready to make a defense. The idea of defense here is a reason. It's not mindless. It, it, it's this idea of defense. Give a reason. Explain what's going on. Asking questions. It's the idea of an attorney. It's not just that I'm sitting and people are nailing me with questions. You know, a lot of questions aren't even good questions. If I come up to some of you today, well, I'd like to pick somebody and pick on them, but I came up to you and say, hey, have you stopped cheating on your test yet? How are you going to answer that? <laughs> if you say... No, it means you're still cheating. If you say yes, it means you were cheating. The assumption is, is you've been cheating. Do you understand that? I've already made an accusation of you. We have questions all over our society that are being thrown at us like that. And so what did Jesus do when questions like that came at him? He asked questions. See, this idea of defense is to have this conversation truly in the best sense of, let me ask you a question. Like I did with that professor in, in the thing. Let me ask you something. Let me, let me take your view and ask you a question about it. You see, we need to learn to be able to do that sort of thing, and that's what he's saying. And that is about the hope that's in us, this incredible reality that Jesus Christ is Lord affects my feelings, affects my forgiveness, the peace I have, it affects my mind, it affects my body, it affects my entire life. And finally, again, I'd love to say more. Catch this. Why is God telling us to be ready to give a defense? Think about it. He's telling us to prepare for something. What's it about? People, it's about ushering people. God uses us to usher people into this eternal life. This isn't about winning an argument. I've said it before, as much as some around me, believe it or not, I don't like to argue. I get wore out. I go home and I go, that just, that just was awful. I don't really want to argue. I want to usher people into something. And so notice what Peter says here, the very heart of Jesus. Give this hope that's in you. Give this defense, yet with gentleness and reverence. There's this kindness there's this asking questions. There's an honest tear in my eye for, for my fellow man. Now let me close up. I, again, there's so much more to be said. But let me give you, read a conclu this conclusion. I wanted to read this to you this morning. This comes from what is thought as perhaps one of the first actual textbooks on apologetics in the second century, 130 AD. It's perhaps one, like one of the first on this idea of apologetics, which means a defense explaining why you believe. And look at this perspective of Christians. And may this be our prayer. And I'm going to read this and close this in prayer. For the Christians were distinguished from other men, neither by country nor language, nor the customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any real singularity. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot each of them has determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us this wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as pilgrims or sojourners. 
As citizens, they share in all things with others, yet endure all things as foreigners. Every foreign land is to them their native country, and every land of their birth is land of strangers. They marry, as do others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. Hmm. They have common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they, live after, they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor they're glorified. They are evilly spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice <clears throat> as if quickened into life. 130 A.D. May that be said about us. huh? Bow with me in prayer. Lord, I thank you for your word. My brothers and sisters know there's a lot more to this conversation, but God, may we set you up as Christ, Lord, and may it impact us. That's my prayer for my friends here, Lord. May we not buy into the immorality of our day these ideologies, Lord, that really are wicked. And we just subtly suck it down. We don't even realize it. Oh, God, bless us, set us apart, use us, work in us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Dave?